listening to the best of Living Wealthy Radio with Teresa Kuhn. Be sure to catch our show live every Sunday on 1370 AM Austin. For information, archives, and upcoming presentations, visit our website at www.livingwealthyradio.com. If you're a business owner who wants to sell your successful company, then you need to pay careful attention to what I'm about to tell you. Selling a business in today's crazy-making economy is not for the faint of heart. A successful sale requires courage, resolve, and a big pair of um, free selling tools. Get your free risk analysis tool and special report today from the only company that can help you sell your business in 49 days or less and pay zero taxes. Go to www.deltabusinessservices.com forward slash exit coach to download yours today. That's www.deltabusinessservices.com or call us at 210-369-4161. Tell them the guy with the sexy voice sent you. Sunday, Austin. Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio with your host, Teresa Kuhn. Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard every Sunday at noon here on Talk Radio 1370 AM, streaming live at talk1370.com. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. So Mary, you have your Ph.D. in biophysics and started off as a pharmaceutical research scientist. How did this translate into a career in political activism? Well, the political activism or the inclination towards it actually started while I was in college. You know, it was the Vietnam era, and of course we had to watch as uh, the men in our group uh, were participating in the raffle, which determined whether or not they would be drafted to go to Vietnam. So it was very hard not to get involved at that point in time. And so what happened after, you know, after college? How did that continue? Well, after college, uh, I got a postdoctoral uh, position at St. Louis University Medical School in the Department of Surgery. So I went from working with molecules to working with whole animals and then on to pharmaceutical work at the Upjohn Company in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Okay. And what continued from there? Why why did you get out of uh, the pharmaceutical research? Well, it was just time. Uh, You know, there was a consolidation of the industry or a cartelization of the industry, if you want to call it that, because the FDA regulations, which grew during the time that I was part of the pharmaceutical research, uh, just were so so difficult and so expensive that the industry had to merge. We had these big mergers and buyouts because if we didn't do that, then if the FDA refused to approve a drug, which generally costs somewhere about a billion dollars to do all the things that the FDA required, if the FDA didn't approve our drug, you know, it could mean bankruptcy for a small company. So the companies kept merging, and that's about the time that I left. 
So it actually cost a billion dollars to get a drug approved with the FDA? If it's a new drug, it's, uh, and these are old numbers, it's probably higher now, but it was about $500 million out of pocket over a 15-year period. So if you add that capitalization in, it's about a billion dollars. Wow, I had no idea. Yes, yeah, so when I started in the industry, it was a mere fraction of that. So it's uh, it's really terrible because what happened, regulations that were passed in 1962 pretty much gave the FDA carte blanche to keep adding more and more demands on the pharmaceutical industry. But it hurt them too, the FDA, because the FDA was expected to approve only drugs that were both safe and effective, and there is no such thing. All drugs have some safety problems, and all drugs are effective in some people and not in others. So if the FDA approved anything, it was going outside its mandate. But if it didn't approve something, then we would have no new drugs on the market. So what is your position today on the FDA and the whole drug industry, the the pharmaceutical drug industry? Well, the pharmaceutical drug industry has really been shaped by these 1962 regulations, as they've grown, it's made, as I said earlier, made it imperative that companies merge and become very big so they can take the hit if they don't get FDA approval. But it's also had a very perverse effect on our programs of prevention because most companies will not develop a drug that can't be patented anymore because there's really no other way to recover their costs if they don't have that patent exclusivity. So what this means, for example, is when we found out that the B vitamin, folic acid, prevented birth defects, such as neural tube defects, which basically means children have to be institutionalized. And when we found out we could prevent that almost totally with the B vitamin folic acid, the FDA would not allow the folic acid companies to talk about it because, you know, then then they would be talking about a drug that had not gone through their process. At least this is how the FDA thinks of it. Of course, it's a B vitamin. It's in our foods, and we can take uh, pills, which are actually a better way for young women to take folic acid because then they get the right dose that prevents these neural tube defects. But even when the Center for Disease Control, another government agency started recommending this, that the FDA told the folic acid manufacturers that they would shut them down if they even talked about the Center for Disease Control's program. So it it confuses me, the whole relationship between the FDA and the pharmaceutical industry. You know, at times it seems like they are in bed together um, because the FDA passes... So many um, drugs that and, and and allow so many things in the market that seems so bad for us. But on the mm-hmm. other hand, um, you know, it cost a billion dollars to uh, you know get get a drug passed. I, explain wh- where am I confused? Uh, well, actually, you you've actually been very accurate. You see what happens when government regulates an industry. The only way that industry usually can survive is to take over the uh, regulators to some extent. The way the pharmaceutical industry has done this is in the early 90s, they started paying a fee. I think it was about $100,000 back then. It was supposed to be optional so that the FDA could go out and hire more people to look over their 15 years of data and, you know, approve it faster. 
And that has turned into, I think, a million dollars today, and I think most pharmaceutical companies don't consider it voluntary. So, you know, almost half of the budget for the part of the FDA that reviews pharmaceuticals is due to this contribution, if you will, by the pharmaceutical companies. And some top officials in the FDA have been quoted as saying that their clients are the pharmaceutical industry, not the American public. So this is very bad for the American public, obviously, but it's a natural result of heavy regulation. And this is why, uh, as you've correctly observed, I think drugs today are less safe than they were before the FDA got so involved, simply because it's extremely difficult to get a new drug on the market. And if you have a brand new drug that cures something that never was cured before, it's even harder because you don't know exactly how to do your studies, you know, what dose to give, how long to give it. And if you don't guess right the first time and have to repeat studies that take years and years, then your patents run out before you even get to market. It goes generic the first day and you never recover your costs. So unfortunately, pharmaceutical companies have to think about can we recover our costs rather than how much will this help somebody. And I saw that shift, you know, when I was in at the Epson Company. When I joined in the 70s, we would develop things without patents. And we really didn't think about how much money we were going to make. And as time went on, we had to, or we were going to go under. So I can see why, you know, to a certain degree, the FDA uh, supposedly is trying to keep the American public safe, right? So I see that the need for some screening, but on the other hand, there's so many drugs and so many, you know, um, products out there that the FDA has approved, and one is aspartame, that, that comes to mind. That's the most obvious in my, my brain. Um, mm-hmm. That they allow, and there's so much information, so much research out there that says it's so bad for you, but they allow it. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm still confused. <laughs> well, it is confusing. Um, we had saccharin on the market before that. Saccharin, I think, yeah. was a lot safer. Um, I personally prefer to use saccharin. <laughs> and um, it's... Uh, it's, it's uh, it's somewhat political, I must say, and it differs from section to section. You know, the, the FDA reviews things by disease type, and some reviewers are much more lenient than others. And certainly, certainly they're, uh, you know, we're human beings, so there's certain biases that are built into the system. Now, what's, what I think your listeners might want to be aware of, and this isn't talked about very much, is that... The reason most, the reason we have side effects in the drugs that get to market, at least before the 1962 amendments, were usually because we didn't know any better. You know, the science wasn't good enough. For example, the big event that triggered the passage of the 62 amendments, which had been sitting around in Congress for years and years, uh, was the thalidomide incident that we had, mostly in Europe. And this was a, a sleeping pill that was actually a lot safer than barbiturates for adults, but it wasn't so safe for the unborn baby. It prevented them from developing arms and legs normally. Mm. So babies were born without limbs. But at the time, we didn't know how sensitive the fetus was um, compared to the mother. So mothers would take this pill for morning sickness, which they had found worked pretty well, but without realizing it was hurting the child. 
Now, of course, we're much more careful, and we test all drugs to make sure that in primates, which is the only place it really shows up, you know, that we wouldn't have any problems. So if, if the problem that we see with side effects is usually that we don't know any better, at least back in the 60s this was the case, then we're not going to help ourselves by adding a lot of extra, quote, safety studies and, and dragging the timeline out. Now, I want to share, if I might, the flip side of this with you. Sure. I was in AIDS research in the early days of AIDS research. And, and you know, the AIDS patients couldn't wait 15 years mm-hmm. to take a new drug to help save their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, this represented an addition of about 10 years to how long it used to take before these amendments passed. So by the time the FDA gave us permission to use our new drugs in AIDS patients, every AIDS patient in the country that wanted them had already taken them because they hired black market chemists to make them, Mm. and they distributed them throughout the country. So they did it with a pretty good safety record, I might add, but they basically broke the law to do that because the downside of all these extra tests are that people whose life could be saved I have to wait and they have to die because the drug isn't available. Mm-hmm. How cozy do you think the FDA and the pharmaceutical industry is? Um, when, I, when, when you mention the word politics, you seem so much shy about it. Personally, I think it's completely political. I think they're completely in bed together. Um, but what's your opinion? Well, you know, again, for the industry to survive, they almost have to be because otherwise they they just can't function and the industry would die. Of course, the industry is today is much different than it was when I was in there. So, you know, (laughs) I know there are some people who think it should die. But here's what happens. A drug company, especially a a new one or one that really wants to bring something special to market, knows they have to jump through all these regulatory hoops. Who better to hire than somebody who's already worked at the FDA and knows what the FDA is going to expect, right? So they hire these former FDA regulators to advise them. And because of this, someone wanting to work in the pharmaceutical industry in the regulatory department might say to themselves, I'll be most valuable if I go to the FDA first. So that's what they do. And so you have this, um, what they call the revolving door between the FDA and the pharmaceutical companies. And once again, this is, this is a very natural result of regulation. This is the way it works. The regulations are put in place theoretically to protect the consumer, but actually, if you think about what they do, they protect the big companies and drive the smaller ones out of business because the smaller companies can't, can't deal with that added cost of the regulation, so they go under or they have to merge with the big companies. So from your um, political theology, where you come from as a libertarian, um, well, first of all, explain explain your position and and, and that that whole um, libertarian school of thought. Sure. Well, libertarians think the choice should be up to the individual and their doctor as to which drugs they're going to take. Um, This is not the current thinking, obviously. You know, cancer, terminal cancer patients actually sued the FDA because they wanted that choice. They said, let us buy drugs from the pharmaceutical companies when they've been tested for safety in people, but not yet for effectiveness. 
They thought it was their constitutional right to save their lives. The courts ruled that there was no constitutional right to save our lives Mm. if we had to use an unapproved drug. So libertarians would say, hey, it's their life, it's their choice, they're the people who have to live or die by that choice. They should be allowed to do what they want. So that's, that's my position, basically. If a person feels that they, they would benefit by taking an unapproved drug, they should be allowed to do so because they suffer the consequences of that decision. I, I could not agree with you more. And so from your perspective, um, what other changes would you make with the whole regulatory um, you know, infrastructure with the FDA and the whole pharmaceutical industry? Well, I mean, of course, there's the ideal, and then there's the stepwise approach. I really don't think we need to have government regulation. The marketplace actually was doing a pretty good job before the 1962 amendments were passed. In fact, there were a lot of um, groups that did third-party evaluation of drugs, which is probably the best type of evaluation. The FDA doesn't really do any studies themselves. They just tell the pharmaceutical companies what they have to do and then look over the data. So um, I would say let's go back to where we were as a first step prior to 62 by simply repealing the 62 amendments. And then we can talk about, you know, whether we should have any regulation at all. I, I think the marketplace is probably the best regulator. I think the government, if we go down that route, always has a political component, and the politics ends up dominating, which means that the consumer ultimately suffers. And the consumer, under a regulatory scheme, has no choice. It should be up to the person who is going to suffer the consequences, and that's the patient. Of course, we hope they'll consult with their doctor and other you know, knowledgeable people, but Basically, it's got to be their choice. I could not agree with you more. Are there other countries that have a more flexible or a more relaxed system for um, regulating drugs and uh, other countries that have uh, give more power to the consumer? Well, it was more true right at the point where the 1962 amendments were passed. For about 10 years, Europe did nothing more than they had already done. And so what happened was Europeans were getting drugs, new drugs, life-saving drugs, more quickly than Americans were. You know, they had about twice as many. Then Europe and other countries started increasing their regulation, and there's actually a worldwide movement called Codex to Mm -hmm. what they call harmonize all the regulations, which really means make them as tough as you can. Germany has adopted some very tough regulations for vitamins. For example, if you want to take more than a couple hundred milligrams of vitamin C, you have to get a prescription. I take about ten times that much because I know from my research back before we manipulated the genes in animals that the way we made our animals sick was to take away their vitamins. And, you know, that's kind of a message to the American people that maybe we need a few more vitamins than are currently available to us, not less. Well, now that our whole food system is, um, you know, our soil system, our food system really lacks greatly in nutrients, we we need access to supplements more. And the whole codex... Um, regulation, the scheme, they want to bring it here to the United States, which I find frightening. Yes, yes. Now, there are ways you can get out of Codex. If, if the country has its own plan, so to speak, it can um, 
it can use that because Codex is enforced by the World Trade Organization, and it's a presumed, um, I guess you would say a presumed code. In other words, if you don't have your own codes, and this is what you have, you have Codex. At least that's the way the World Trade Organization looks at it. So if you have your own code that says, you know, uh, our people can take whatever they want in terms of vitamins, then, of course, you're, you're safe from Codex. At least this is the current thinking. Whether that will continue to hold, I don't know. Are we at risk of um, falling under Codex? Well, yes, I think we are at risk just because our FDA does want to regulate vitamins, uh, and it has come twice to Congress to get that power. Both times, the American people have responded um, in a way that they never have before. Congress got more mail those two times on that issue than they had gotten on any other issue, and so um, they ended up passing um, a law that supposedly allows Americans that flexibility and actually commanded the FDA to allow truthful claims for nutrients. But the FDA had to, had to be dragged back into court a couple times before it would comply. Mm. So what the FDA prefers is that we make nutrients prescription drugs. And one company did that with fish oil. So they jumped through all the hoops uh, for cardiovascular disease and, and fish oil. And now they are the only company that can go to doctors and say, our fish oil has been approved by the FDA, and, you know, it's going to help with your patients with heart disease, so you should prescribe it. So now patients end up having a copay that it is as much as it would be if they just went out and bought the same amount of fish oil from, you know, some other vendor like Walmart or some of the nutritional companies that supply it. And, of course, the insurance company pays the rest of the freight and costs go up. So you can kind of see how health costs go up when they start regulating heavily. Always. Always. Isn't that just so typical of of the whole industry? Um, Crazy stuff. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we're going to explore why it's so important that you understand how to accept responsibility for the state of the world and how that simple act can ultimately lead to abundance and prosperity. So we'll be back in a few. This is Teresa Kuhn with Living Wealthy Radio. You are listening to Living Wealthy Radio with Teresa Kuhn. Catch Teresa every Sunday at noon and be sure to visit livingwealthyfinancial.com for more information or call 1-800-382-0830 to set up a consultation with Teresa. She's local and excited to speak with you. Living Wealthy Radio. Visit Teresa's team online at livingwealthyradio.com, 1-800-382-0830 now. Call 1-800-382-0830. Welcome back, Austin, to Living Wealthy Radio with Teresa Kuhn. We're back with Mary Roark, research scientist, activist, and author of Healing Our World. Mary takes a very unique look at politics and the struggles we're experiencing in our world through her book and lays out a very simple solution that basically we all need to simply accept responsibility for our own actions, stop trying to control others, and love our neighbors. This sounds like the lessons I learned in kindergarten, right? 
<laughs> yes, very much so. We all learned this. Well, uh, maybe not all of us, but almost all of us learned this. You know, you don't hit your playmate. You don't take their toys. You don't spread lies about them. It's, it's very simple. And if you do, you know, if you break your toy by mistake, for example, or even in a fit of anger, uh, you replace it. You know, and, and of course, if you've, if you've harmed them in some way because they didn't have their toy or whatever you broke, you know, you try to make up for that too. So it's, it's what we learned as children. So how does this translate into uh, our government um, and how we as individuals can really start changing, you know, what's going on in our government today? I think many people would agree that the government is so intrusive uh, in, in not only the lives of Americans, but really the lives all over the world, right? We are in so many wars. We're in so many countries trying to spread our goodwill. And I say that in quotations. Uh, mm-hmm. Your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, you know, it's because of the disconnect between what we do as individuals and what we do group to group. You know, we just talked about what we do as individuals to be good neighbors. You know, we you know, if I came to your house, for example, Teresa, and I said, Teresa, will you please contribute to my favorite charity? And you said, well, this isn't a good time, not today, maybe some other time. I'd probably smile and say, okay, well, you know, until then. And I'd go on my way. We'd still be friends. But when we, when we go through government and we work group to group, we do not accept what the other person wants to do. You know, we don't let them have their freedom. So what we do is we try to impose our will on them. And basically what we do is we go to the polls and we vote for our favorite charity. So now if you don't want to contribute to it, you'll be forced to through your taxes. And if you don't pay your taxes for that particular thing, then you know the government will come eventually with guns to take your, mm-hmm. take your property, take your money. And so we don't honor our neighbor's choice anymore. So we, we start squaring off as uh, majorities and minorities, victims and aggressors, and we really create a state of war within our own community. And we do this on the local level, the national level, and the international level. So what should be done differently? Well, what we should do differently is honor our neighbor's choice, just like we do on a one-to-one basis, because we know if we don't do that on a one-to-one basis, we're going to have a feud like the Hatfields and McCoys. So if we want to avoid that at the group-to-group level, we have to apply the same principle and not try to bend each other to our wills. And, you know, this gets back to some of the stuff we're talking, too, about, you know, a lot of people, for example, think that abortion is is murder and it's abhorrent. And when the government funds uh, subsidies for abortion, you know, people who think it's murder are really forced at gunpoint, if necessary, to pay taxes to support what they consider murder. You know, this is very bad. And same with the international wars you were just talking about. Whether we like it or not, our tax dollars are being used to go overseas and, in many cases, kill many more civilians than terrorists or any other person or group that might be against us. And it's really scary because those civilians that are killed have friends and families, and they aren't going to feel very friendly toward us. When I started traveling internationally in the 70s, everybody loved Americans, and they were happy to see us. This is not true anymore. Well, how could it, right? Like you just said, um, there are so many people killed in the name of 
spreading goodwill and democracy, um, you know, that we're doing under our flag. And they've got friends and family. Um, you know, if my child was killed by an American who supposedly was trying to do good and I was in another country, you know, I'd hate America, right? Mm-hmm. And um, we we stick our nose in other people's business, all I mean, us as a country, all day long. And what's recently come out with the whole NSA, um, you know, snooping on us, um, as Americans, I think we should be completely outraged. Um, this isn't new information for many of us. So many of us knew this was going on, but apparently it's news. Um, it's crazy how we're not more outraged. It's crazy mm-hmm. that we're not looking at our government and, and you know, demanding something different. Why, why do you think we're so passive? Well, it's, you know, I think there's a certain complacency that comes with... Um, that comes with affluence sometimes. It doesn't have to happen, but I think it has happened in our case. And as long as we feel like we have the necessities of life, uh, we and you know, have our TV remote, <laughs> just to give an example of, of kind of a symbol of our, our society, I think we are quite content. And, you know, we don't want to spend time rocking the boat because it takes time away from our other interests. On the other hand, um, you know, it's it's kind of like that fable of the frog that gets cooked because if you put him in a pot of hot water, he'll immediately jump out. But if you put him in a pot of cold water and turn the heat up gradually, you know, he gets kind of lethargic. And before he realizes it and, and, and it's starting to cook, you know, there's no more energy to jump out anymore. I think we've sort of kind of come down that road, and it's really too bad. Now, I say that... Um, talking about, I think, society as a whole. But what is very exciting to me, and I hope will be exciting to you and your listeners, is there is a movement afoot among the young people that really recognize what's going on. They see that um, the non-aggression principle, or the good neighbor policy, as I like to call it, really is the way out of this situation that we find ourselves in. And it's the best and brightest among them that are coming up and getting excited about this. Um, Some of the organizations that I'm thinking of are Students for Liberty, Young Americans for Liberty. When they hold a conference, they get 1,000 people, 1,000 students and young people to their conferences, and that's very exciting because I've been in this movement for, well, since the 70s, and this is really the first time since the Vietnam era I have seen young people so excited about the concepts of freedom, liberty, self-responsibility, and so I'm, I'm feeling like this generation uh, of young people is going, uh, they are going to be able to do what my generation was not. Well, it's interesting. Ron Paul, I think, um, is considered to be like rock star status, right, with the young yes. people, which is fantastic. He was, he was the 1988 Libertarian Party presidential candidate. Um, and at that point, you know, I think it just wasn't time. Now it is time. And it's wonderful to see him activating all of these people who before had no interest in politics because they didn't have the key. They didn't understand it. They didn't know what needed to be done, and now they do. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And I'm thrilled that he is retired and is 
just out there doing all sorts of great things um, and really spreading the liberty message. Because whatever your political affiliation is, and this isn't really about political affiliation, right? At least for me, from my perspective, I, you could be a Republican, a Democrat, you know, libertarian, independent, whatever. Um, the message that Ron Paul um, talks about is that of liberty, that of, you know, what made this country great. And we're so far away from um, really the country that was first founded. Um, I think our Constitution has been hijacked personally. Um, you just look at what's going on and you, you say, you know, this can't be. This is America, right? Our our police are militarized. Um, we we are doing so many things wrong. We, as Americans, don't have, it seems like, any right to privacy anymore in the name of national security and the name of, you know, counterterrorism and all the other stuff. Um, and regulation. I mean, we are just regulated to death. We there are so many laws on the books. You have no idea what law you might be breaking. Well, we're all lawbreakers. I mean, there's always there's so many laws that for sure you probably break several of them a day. Right. So that's kind of scary. It's very very scary. Um, your message is also one of um, of economics and wealth and how we can we can start creating more wealth by making some changes. Speak mm-hmm. to that. Yes. So, you know, we were talking earlier about being a good neighbor. And, you know, that meant you don't steal, you don't beat up on people, etc. Well, think about places where those things are not true, where people are stealing from each other, where they're beating up on their neighbor. I mean, you know, we call that, uh, you know, usually... Um, an area that, uh, you know, we try to avoid because there's a lot of danger there. There's basically war going on right there in the city blocks. So in, in a situation like that, there isn't any prosperity. All the wealth is being destroyed by theft or vandalism, and people are spending so much time beating each other up and being at war that there's no time to produce wealth. So, you know, it's a very poor neighborhood usually that does that. And that's so, so that what's true there is also true for our country. If we spend all our time trying to regulate each other, trying to tax each other, spending all our time lobbying to get, you know, our political advantage, then there's no time to create wealth. And what countries have found is if they lower government spending, taxes, and tariffs, they can just about double their wealth creation almost immediately. And the countries that have tried this um, at different periods in their history, and I mean recent history, are Great Britain, New Zealand, and Ireland. They've had like 10-year periods where they've decided to try the experiment of lowering taxes, lowering government spending, and lowering tariffs, mostly because they were desperate. And what they found is they just about doubled their wealth creation or their what we call the GDP, the gross domestic product. Of course, what happened is politicians decided they wanted a cut of this, and they started retaxing and re-regulating mm. and, and putting the tariffs back on, and things went back to the way they were. But it's pretty obvious that we know the secret of wealth creation. Any country, any nation that wants to be wealthy or wealthier can just do these simple things, give people more freedom, and they will go out and create wealth. And the beauty of it is the wealth is pretty evenly distributed. In fact, the poor people usually benefit more because the poor are the first people who are put out of business by regulations. 
And I'm proud to say that the Institute for Justice, which is the libertarian organization of lawyers, take on pro bono cases for people like this that are put out of business, from the African-American hair braiders being put out of business by the cosmetology laws or the people who want to drive taxis. You know, they may only have one car, but they want to drive it and be a taxi service, and they're put out of business by these regulations. Institute for Justice is there fighting for them, and I think it's, it's wonderful to see libertarians stepping up to the plate and protecting the interests of the poor in exactly the right way, which is protecting their ability to have the job of their choice and not have it shut down by government regulation. So why do you think that, you know, those three countries that you mentioned that experimented with lower tariffs and lower taxes and they started to thrive, you said the politicians then came back in and, and started to tax them again. Um, That's right. But, but we've seen in our own country when we've lowered tax rates, uh, the government actually collects more in taxes. So right. if if this is true, why, you know, what is it with the politicians? What is it with the lobbyists um, that want to continue to see us not thrive? Because the formula is simple. It's there. They know this. Mm-hmm. If we right. figured it out, you know, they know it. Of course. Well, I think their short-term interests are put above the long-term interests of the country. You know, short-term if they promise a segment of the population some giveaways by raising taxes, then those people will vote for them. And so that's the game that's played. And it's it's really sad because it's not in the best interest of the country and usually not even in the best interest of the people who are getting the handouts. You got it. Um, and we see that every single day, right? Yes, we do. And And I think that this is... You know, I think this is very short-sighted because ultimately, if we are in a wealthy society, we're all going to do better than if we're in a poor society. I mean, would you rather be a poor person here or in India? It's a pretty simple choice. Mm -hmm. You want to be a poor person if you're going to have to be poor in the wealthiest nation in the world. Of course, if you are in the wealthiest nation, chances are that even if you're on the bottom rung of the ladder, you're still better off than most of the people in a very poor nation. But ideally, you have the opportunity to move up, you know. And and that's, I think, the promise, the American dream was always you come with nothing in your pockets, you work hard, you make something of yourself, and you too can be wealthy. And I think that this American dream has been pretty much squashed by government regulation. But the only way government can do this is if it has our consent. You know, we... We kind of let ourselves be persuaded that, oh, it would be good to tax because then someone, you know, the poor will benefit or somebody else will benefit or I will benefit. And, uh, you know, with that mindset, we say it's okay to steal, you know, as long as it's for a good cause. Well, anybody can make an argument for anything to be a good cause. So we're opening the door, um, like I said, to be the Hatfields and McCoys at a, at a national level, and it's very sad. Well, if I was to put a gun to your head, right, and and tell you, hey, give me your money, um, I'd go to prison for a very long time. If we as a group or a mob, uh, you know, put a gun to your head and say, hey, give us your money, then it's democracy in action, right? Exactly. And that's, that's, you described very well the disconnect that we usually have between what we do on a, in our daily life and what we do in our political life. And that's why politics feels dirty to us, because it is. <laughs> we just don't know why it feels dirty. And, and that's what it is. There's a disconnect between the very principles that we know and honor as individuals 
and the principles that we kind of abandon when we get into the political arena. Mm-hmm. You know, in in your book, there are some quotes that I I really love. Um, and one is uh, regarding property taxes. And I think most people don't realize that at one point, um, property was not taxed. Um, you had title to your property without having to pay taxes to a municipality or a county or a city. And one of your quotes says, you know, property taxes amount to and practice a kind of rent you have to pay the government each, each year to be allowed to keep living on your own property. And mm-hmm. um, I'd, I'd love to, to hear your opinion on that. I think that, you know, you never really own your property ever, even if it's paid off. As long as yep. you're, you're required to pay a municipality or a government agency money, you're in essence renting your property because the day you stop, you're kicked out. Well, that's right. In fact, when I ran for city commission in Kalamazoo, I would doorbell. You know, I'd go and knock on the door, ring the doorbell, and talk to people. And what I heard most was, oh, we are so glad you're fighting property taxes because, you know, I bought this house. This would be an older woman, you know, or a man in their 60s, 70s. You know, we bought this house when we were first married, and we paid it off. But now the property taxes every month are more than our mortgage and property mm-hmm. tax. We bought this house and we cannot afford to live here anymore, so we're going to have to sell. And here, you know, we thought we could live here for the rest of our lives. And so, you know, our, our elderly are in this horrible position where they've paid off their house, but they have to leave because the property taxes are so high. It's ridiculous. So when you talk about this, I'm sure the pushback you get is, well, of course taxes you know, need to be imposed on property because how are we going to pay? For, you know, how's the city going to run their services and how are we going to pay for all these things? Sure. Well, same way that we pay for our groceries. You know, we don't we don't pay the government to provide our groceries. We pay, uh, you know, at the store, and that money that we pay goes to the store, it goes to the farmers, it goes to the people who have trucked it in. You know, there's a system called the free market, which works very well for food. Um, it, and, of course, it could work for the services that cities provide, too, like trash pickup. I've been in cities where it's provided by the city, and I've been in places where it's provided, you know, privately. And I can tell you that privately always works out better because these people who are providing service have to please you in order to keep your service. So, uh, you know, it tends to be tends to be much lower priced and it tends to be more friendly. So... You know, these services can be provided by the private sector, and they used to be provided by the private sector before the government got involved. So if these services were provided by the private sector, are you thinking that taxes wouldn't be necessary? No, you wouldn't. You'd you'd pay your, you know, fee for service. I mean, and you'd probably pay about half of what you're paying now because a government always, always is more expensive than uh, private uh, provision of services, you know, you would think, uh, it's kind of a natural tendency to think that, oh, well, if there's one service provider, they're going to have this economy of scale and be able to give us a better service for less, but it doesn't actually work that way mm-hmm. because there's no competition, and so it's really kind of hard to know, even if the government wants to be efficient, it's really kind of hard to know what efficiency means under under a system where you don't get the kind of feedback that you do when you're a private business. When you're a private business, if your customers aren't happy, they go elsewhere. And that's a pretty big signal that you pay attention to pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. 
What are your thoughts on minimum wage laws? Um, you seem to suggest that they actually make the poor poorer. Yes, yes, they do. I actually had a um, had a time when I was rehabbing um, uh, apartments, usually low income housing, and I I remember one of my first uh, renovations. I had a gentleman who lived down the street come to me, and he wanted me to pay him two dollars an hour, which was below the minimum wage at that time. And he had some disabilities, but I would have been willing to hire him at $2 an hour. He figured that if I hired him at that, he could show me that he could work hard enough to either get a raise or get a recommendation from me, either of which I would have been happy to give him. Uh, But the problem was if I hired him, I would be violating the minimum wage laws. And at that point, I was uh, a little nervous about doing that, So I and I didn't know I didn't know how uh, rigorous those were going to be enforced, so I decided not to do that, which was very sad. I would have liked to give this gentleman an opportunity, but I didn't dare. So this is how it keeps, the, especially the disabled, out of the workplace. And had I been able to give him a job, um, and had he done a good one for me, I would have been happy to pay him more or give him a recommendation. And you see, he could walk to work. There was no transportation involved. So it made it a little easier for him in in the sense that he didn't need to make quite as much money to have a certain amount of take-home pay. So it would have been a win-win situation, and it would have helped him move up the ladder of employment. But, you know, I just couldn't take the chance. So that's a very personal example. Do you have another example from a more um, regional or national perspective? Well, there's been a lot of studies done on minimum wage, and, and almost all of them, I would say 90% of them, show uh, problems. For example, um, prior to the minimum wages expanding after World War II, black employment, black teenage employment, was as prevalent as white teenage employment. In fact, blacks were generally more employed than whites. But once the minimum wage started kicking in and covering more and more jobs, employers preferred to hire uh, white teenagers rather than black teenagers, maybe partly because of prejudice, maybe partly because the um, white teenagers were more of the culture of the customers, so you know it was natural to go down that way. But now the blacks couldn't compete. You know, they couldn't say, I'll work for a dollar less because then they'd be below the minimum wage. So once minimum wage started rising, the black unemployment, the teenage black unemployment rose. And what's bad about the teenage unemployment being lost is that that teenage job is like the first entry into the workforce. Without that, you don't get to the next step of the ladder because you don't have a recommendation. You don't have someone to vouch that you did good work. You don't have any experience. So if you don't, you know, get that first job as a young person, it's very, very hard to work your way up the ladder. It certainly is. And if I was an employer hiring, um, and I've got several resumes to look at, um, and I'm hiring somebody, you know, right out of college, of course I'm going to prefer somebody who's got work experience. Um, Even if they started at 16 or 17 years old working, you know, that's, um, that's a set of experience that, you know, it shows initiative, it shows, um, you know, they're going to have more uh, world knowledge, right? More, I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for, but... Um, yeah, that's, that's a good way. World knowledge, yeah, that is exactly what they have. Better that's prepared, what right. That's what experience is, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And and the government telling me how much, what's the minimum amount I need to pay. Look, if I'm not treating my employees right and I'm not paying them enough, I'm not going to get very good employees. It's mm-hmm. it's going back to allow the marketplace to regulate itself. Mm-hmm. And it's actually hurting. It's actually hurting some affluent students as well. I mean, I remember. Um, in my laboratory, uh, we used to have students come in from the neighboring colleges, and they used to do a thesis with us. And that cost us money because, you know, we had to provide the chemicals and the animals and things like that for them. But, you know, we felt this was a good trade-off. I mean, after all, whatever they were doing was something, you know, in the laboratory that, you know, we wanted to see done. So it was kind of a good trade. And they were happy. They got experience. And, and it was very valuable, too, because I had some pre-med students who found out they couldn't stand the sight of blood. Mm. So they're on their senior year of college. You know, it's a little late to be finding that out. Mm-hmm. But at least they're finding it out before they go to medical school. So very valuable experience for both parties. We're all happy. Well, again, minimum wage kicks in, and we are told that we have to pay them at least minimum wage. And that meant, of course, that it was extra cost and that we could have fewer students in. So even the students that were in college already, getting ready to graduate as seniors who could have used some laboratory experience, uh, didn't get it. Hmm. Well, Mary, thank you so much for being our guest today. Um, I highly encourage our listeners to read your book, Healing Our World, which is completely free online at www.ruwart.com slash healing. Um, We could all use some healing in our world today so we can stop this division and just come together as a country and um, go back to, I don't know, I'd love a time when um, you know, if we were living back in, you know, when the Constitution reigned supreme, right, and um, the government didn't have so many agencies and weren't in every aspect of our life, um, maybe I'm dreaming, but I'd love, I'd love to live back then. Well, actually, you know, the, the beauty of it is today we can have our cake and eat it, too, because now we know the good things about the Constitution, which we can keep. We know the bad things. It did allow slavery, after all. Back in those days, women were property. I don't think I'd like to go back to that, but um, certainly now with our perspective, we can live in today's world with a better understanding of the Constitution, making sure that we know what freedom really means and what uh, what being a good neighbor really entails, and we can have a much better world than we did back then. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much again for being our guest today. And uh, we will post your links on our website, livingwealthyradio.com. This is Teresa Kuhn. Have a great day. You are listening to Living Wealthy Radio with Teresa Kuhn. Catch Teresa every Sunday at noon and be sure to visit livingwealthyfinancial.com for more information or call 1-800-382-0830 to set up a consultation with Teresa. She's local and excited to speak with you.